Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And there's been a lot of them, so I wanted to remind folks that they can uh, dig into the archive uh, both at uh, PRN, at uh, Podbean, and at my own uh, uh, technosis uh, website, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com, which also features uh, tons of writing by me and, and um, indications about upcoming events. In a couple of months, I'll be doing a lot of events based on my uh, upcoming book, High Weirdness, and I'm very excited about that. I'll be in the West Coast, East Coast, and, uh, and in Europe. I also wanted to remind folks that if they want to, they can uh, call up PRN and leave a message for Expanding Mind, which is kind of fun to get your weave your voices into the show. 1701-719-0890 is the number. 1701-719-0890. And again, we, we love feedback, and we particularly love feedback on uh, iTunes and other places where people read uh, about podcasts, because I think we're doing a, doing a fun thing here. Well, I'm very excited about today's show. Uh, of course, that's something I could say every week, but it's particularly true uh, today. Um, uh, many years ago, I, I became friends with uh, uh, a wonderful writer and tarot uh, expert uh, uh, named Rachel Pollock. Uh, we did a wonderful conversation, she and I, and, and Neil Gaiman for the magazine Gnosis back in the 90s, which is a wonderful uh, you know, ma- magazine that I still miss. Um, and we talked about mythology and the tarot and uh, popular culture and how they all kind of interact. It was a, a wonderful conversation. And uh, getting to know Rachel and reading her books on tarot and, and getting some readings from her, uh, which were wonderfully spontaneous. You know, I expected this very arcane, deeply symbolic, uh, ritualistic kind of experience. And it was so wonderfully casual. It was that kind of like spon- almost spontaneous uh, kind of reading that you get only when you really reach uh, a, a level of, of, of true mastery where it becomes almost simple uh, in, in appearance, but, but very deep in uh, effect and richness. Um, uh, Rachel talked a lot about her friend Mary Greer, who is probably the most well-known uh, tarot uh, uh, master or mistress or goddess or <laughs> uh, uh, oracle that we have here in the in the United States, and so I've been meaning to talk to Mary for many years, and you know, like I have a huge list of names to get to, and it's just kind of crazy. Uh, but I have a wonderful excuse, uh, which is that she participated in a fabulous book that just came out, Pamela Coleman Smith, The Untold Story, and. For those of you who are not uh, uh, too hip to the deep lore, the famous so-called Rider Waite uh, tarot deck, which is the one that everybody knows the most. Uh, I guess some people know Aleister Crowley's Thoth deck the most, but most of us know uh, the so-called Rider Waite deck the most. And I say so-called because uh, one important name missed from that is Pamela Coleman Smith, who uh, actually did the designs uh, for the work. And while she was guided by A.E. Waite for some of the work, particularly the, the, the major, the, the Trumps, the major arcana, uh, she really probably contributed a great deal to a lot of the images that people have come to love um, all over the world. It's an incredibly uh, popular work. I mean, it's a, it's a major story in like you know, pop card success and U.S. Games has been cranking them out since the early 1970s under the um, 
devoted hand of Stuart Kaplan, who's also a collector of uh, uh, Pamela Smith's work. And he wrote the main text and put together this uh, wonderful volume, which is like kind of the like the coolest art book that's ever come out on a uh, from a company that has games game systems in its title because it's U.S. game systems. Um, it's wonderfully illustrated. I learned a huge amount about this person that I knew a little bit about. Uh, she's a very compelling character, nicknamed Pixie. And when you see photographs of her, you can see why. Very independent, uh, minded, spirited. Uh, spent time in Jamaica. Um, just a delightful being, you can tell, both through her art and through the stories of her experiences. Very uh, DIY in a way, did her own magazines, her own publications for uh, for a while, and illustrated many things, so, t- most of which I had never seen before. Uh, so I, I, I highly recommend this book if you're into, uh, you know, esotericism in art or the tarot or even just the history of popular illustration, because she's a remarkable illustrator at a time, you know, arguably the best time for uh, illustration for you know kids books or uh, mythology or things like that uh, at least in my opinion that's kind of the the, the, the golden age and she's really uh, taking it in some really interesting ways so it's wonderful to see uh, the range of her work uh, as well as to contemplate how her own um, influences and her own experiences fed into this set of images, this tarot deck, that has had such an enormous impact, not just in terms of visual imagery or showing up in a Led Zeppelin record or films or, uh, you know, things like that, but just in terms of articulating, shaping people's unconscious or their their encounters with archetypal forces or symbolic forces uh, and the tremendous influence the deck itself has had on other decks. Uh, so there's no one who could help us uh, unpack this better than than Mary Greer. So Mary, thanks so much for for joining us on Expanding Mind. Oh, Eric, I'm very glad to be here, and that was a wonderful introduction to her book. Yeah, well, tell me, I, I'm I'm actually kind of curious when you, uh, in your you know uh, discovery and exploration of the tarot, first sort of became intrigued with who this artist was and and how difficult it was to find out about her and at what point you really became sort of enamored uh, of her and her particular uh, influence on on this deck or her, her expression through this deck. Well, my first introduction to Tarot was a, an Eden Gray book back in 1967. Uh, and... I immediately set out to find the deck, which was the Pamela Coleman Smith, then known as uh, Rider Waite Tarot uh, from University Books. And that was the only um, deck that was readily available, but you had to even go far afield to find a store that would have it. So I had been asking all around. Um, I loved the deck right off because it was so amiable to telling stories, uh, you know, getting someone to talk about what they saw in it, which was what I was very interested in because I was coming from uh, a strong interest in Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and archetypal criticism in my English classes. Uh, so it just spoke to me immediately. But uh, my interest in her in particular really came up in the early 70s when Melinda Boyd Parsons curated a museum exhibit of her artwork, primarily other works of art that she had done, and wrote a wonderful catalog 
uh, for it that talked about some of the sources of her imagery. So Melinda was part as part of the um, biography of Pamela Coleman Smith. She wrote a section on uh, the tarot deck itself because she had been really looking at what could be the sources for the <clears throat> the imagery that Pamela included in the deck that went beyond what weight had uh, dictated. Well, uh, th let's talk about that because that's a, a really interesting point. You know, it's it's funny that there's. There's, you know, in my mind, the two most significant decks in the English-speaking world are are uh, the Smith, you know, the Wade Smith deck and uh, or Smith Wade deck and um, and the Thoth deck. And in both cases, you have the sort of conventional story is that the the the, the great Magus, you know, the the male mind who's putting together all this arcane symbology, then just sort of dictates it to this you know, to the female scribe who manifests their visions. And it's such a, such a gendered, you know, a class, you know, traditionally gendered story. And then of course you look more closely at it and you go, wait, that's, that's actually not entirely what's happening. It's like, yes, the guys were doing that and they may have been thinking that that's what they were doing, but in both cases in diff very different ways, but in both cases uh, you, you discover that a lot of what people are responding to and a lot of what makes the, gives the decks their lasting character is actually supplied by the artist. And um, in the case then, of, you know, which then leads to the question like, well, how much influence did they have? And we, you know, as far as I understand it, we don't know that much because we only have some uh, vague uh, hints, uh, particularly about the 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 minor arcana, the the pip cards. Um, mm -hmm. So, talk. Can you talk a little bit about how revolutionary the deck was in terms of the pip cards, and and how you have come to see what uh, what 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 Pamela Smith was doing um, with her illustrations of those cards in particular, the the you know the the, the numbered cards. Yes, um, it seems that she was pretty much left alone to create the minor arcana cards, which are, you're calling the pip cards. The decks before that uh, just had abstract symbols, uh, like a regular playing card deck, except that it was wands, cups, uh, swords, and coins on the older decks, um, and actually batons instead of wands on, on most of the um, early decks. And the Golden Dawn reconceptualized uh, those using the pentacles as a magic symbol of protection instead of coins. Um, and Pamela Coleman-Smith seemed to have been left on her own, um, perhaps given... Um, a variety of meanings for each of the cards, but to come up with the pictures and images that would express those. So that uh, totally transformed uh, tarot. There, there was an early deck that did have some illustrations on the minor ar arcana cards. Uh, that was the Solabuska deck, which was practically unknown at the time, but photographs had been sent to the British Museum and wait lived at the British Museum, knew all the curators there. So I'm sure he took Pamela immediately to see these images. So we have the Ten of Wands with a man carrying ten sticks on his back, and we have the Three of Swords with three swords through the heart and a couple of others. But um, even with the Solabuska deck, there's like five or six cards showing a man with a bunch of uh, sticks on his back. So uh, there was the same motif repeated over and over again through many of the cards, whereas Pamela took the concept or idea and a couple of the images and used that throughout the entire um, 
36 minor arcana cards. I do think Waite worked with her on the aces because there's some very particular symbolism that was particular to him, appears over and over in his books where he talks about those. But the um, two through 10 seem to be very original to her based on basic meanings that he gave her and possibly a hint of a storyline. Well, we, yeah, we know she was um, working very quickly for uh, a couple of months at a place called Small Hive, the home of Ellen Terry, the um, British actress who was her foster mother. And uh, she incorporated a lot of imagery from that environment. Well, you'd, you'd mentioned before about how, how great they are for, for storytelling, how suggestive they are of stories, but you're just getting these little these little slices of it. And, and it, I, I wrote a, a, a brief piece about uh, the deck um, a number of years ago, and one of the things that I was thinking about was, you know, there's a lot going on in the late 19th century, you know, not only the Golden Dawn and sort of the initiation of, of modern, the modern occult re- revival uh, in many ways, you know, coming from some French sources, but but really in the English-speaking world, that was the the kind of uh, the source for, for for modern occultism. But also the emergence of of, of new media, uh, new media of the imagination. And and what sort of strikes me when I was when I was kind of looking at these images again and thinking about particularly with the uh, uh, the numbered cards uh, that they 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 combine this this dynamic motion. There's often a lot of motion, even though the sort of language of the major arcana is often very static in the sense of being hierarchic or, or a deeply, you know, balanced icon. And so even if there's a gesture, it has the sense of being very, you know, still and composed and balanced, whereas there's so much dynamics in, 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 the, uh, in the lower cards. And I was thinking of both film stills and comic book frames, both of which are, are coming to be in, a, you know, roughly the same kind of period of time. And, and so they express a very modern feeling of dynamics, even as they remain in this kind of archetypal frame, where most of the images are kind of medieval or neo-medieval, at the very least informed by kind of craftsman uh, values. But at the same time, there's something very modern and, and open about them, as if, as if here, take these Take these stills of a story mm-hmm. and rearrange them or, or discover a new arrangement and out of that, tell your own, uh, tell your own story. Yes, and she was trained at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn to be a book illustrator. Although uh, the articles about her that were in the Pratt newsletter basically said in a very um, kind way that they couldn't really teach her anything because her style and her way of doing things was so unique. But she did learn a lot about illustrating someone else's story. So um, making it come alive. And that's what you see so much in this book about her. Um, All the examples of her other artwork is that aliveness. She illustrated a book on the Russian ballet that was written by Ellen Terry um, because they had recently come to London and were, um, you know, the biggest thing that was going on there. And the dancing, you can get the feeling of the movement So she, yes, I think you've made an excellent point there, is that she really made scenes come alive and you have a sense of something going on, something happening. 
uh, we're familiar with it and with modern storytelling and uh, some of the great illustrators of the 19th century also caught that, but that's what makes it uh, so available to the middle of the story. Whereas the major arcana, as you said, they're very static. They're kind of based on the tree of life, which has these two columns on either side and a figure uh, in the what's called the middle pillar sitting in the middle. Uh, so many of those are this kind of static um, archetype, if we want to put it that way, to mix up <laughs> uh, occultism with Carl Jung. <laughs> well, which is almost inevitable in this story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and um, But yeah, the storytelling character and the... Um, there's a universality that actually comes there with that storytelling faux, medi faux medieval um, style of uh, design and costume that you can sort of place it anywhere, anytime. And that's what people have done. Almost all the modern decks um, today have, um, have work off of her minor arcana. So they play with it. They either copy it fairly closely, or they are doing a dance that is obviously in relationship to it. It's funny you use the word dance there, and, and that one of my uh, the, the, the parts that really fascinated me about uh, Stuart Kaplan's main uh, essay in the in the book is he he pulled out this sort of the these images of dancing women in particular, and because uh, one of the questions you want to want to ask is like, well, you know, what's really motivating her? Like, how deep are, are what where her, what are her spiritual sources? You know, and we know that she she spent time in the Golden Dawn, but she wasn't like a deep you know deep member. And I'd, I'd love to hear you reflect on that a little bit. But just to stay with the dance for a bit, there's something very powerful and dare I say pagan that comes through these images. There's a kind of uh, a, a, a more of a Dionysian quality than you would expect at this time and place in terms of the energy, even if it's still, you know, decorous to, to some degree. Um, and it, it feels like with these dancing women, you're, you're, you're understanding something about her own self-expression because she was clearly a very dynamic person, very colorful, you know, interesting uh, fashion choices, uh, you know, someone, a life of the party kind of, kind of person. Uh, what, what do you, what, could you say more about the, 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 the figure of the dance and how important that was to her and her approach to mythology or her approach to, uh, to just to images in general? A couple of things. First, that that uh, first article, the strongly biographical one, is actually by Elizabeth Folley O'Connor. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, but we all uh, contributed, uh, shared information, edited each other's pieces, and Stuart Kaplan was um, with us 100% of the way. Um, but she's the one who actually did uh, a huge amount of research and pulled together um, a very strong biographical um, piece, partly because there's um, a lot of stories that go around about Pamela Coleman Smith. There's huge parts of her life that very little is known about. And then a very short period when there's a huge amount known because there were hundreds and hundreds of articles written about her during a very short middle period of her life. But to get to that um, dance, um, she was uh, involved in theater from a very young age because her mother was renowned in Brooklyn for being part of kind of society drawing room dramas. Um, they, when they moved to England because her father was working in the arts and crafts um, uh, 
construction, you know, furniture business, um, and was bringing some of the American ideas to England. Um, it seems that they were also very involved in the arts world and especially theater. It was with her father that she first met Henry Irving, who uh, was the head of the Lyceum Theater that Ellen Terry was uh, acting in, and Pamela Coleman Smith traveled with them. She also made um, little theaters. They have the, the uh, end of the 19th century, very popular to make these uh, home little mini theaters uh, that would just be like, you know, 18, 20 inches high and wide. Uh, and you'd have little cardboard figures that you would move around and act out uh, different theater pieces. And Shakespeare was very, very important to her. And anyone who's seen Shakespeare on stage, it's full of action and movement and song and dance. Uh, so she was involved with it on stage. Um, she did costume design for the Lyceum Theater and for William Butler Yeats. And um, then her, her own sense of um, theater and movement and color. That was one of the big complaints about her, is that her colors were so wild and so bright. And people were going to a more limited, um, dull path palette at that time, but hers were just, um, you know, brilliant oranges and greens and, and reds. Um, and then another factor that added into that was that she, from the age of 10 until um, around 19, 20 years old, she lived for most of the year in Jamaica, where her father was working um, for a railroad there. So she became enamored of the folk tales that were taught to her. And for the middle part of her life, part of the way that she made money was as a professional storyteller, where she dressed up in the bright colors of the Jamaican women and would sit on the floor and with little figures like the ones she used in the uh, miniature theaters, she would tell the stories in the Jamaican accent. So all of this is this kind of dynamic, lifeful um, music, dance, uh, theatrical energy that was around her that she epitomized. Yeah, that's great. I want to stay a little bit with that, the the connection with, with Jamaica. You know, I, I was reading, I was thinking about this, you know, and for our, you know, kind of modern sensibilities that, that might strike us a bit off, you know, of like dressing up like a Jamaican woman and telling stories in pigeon. But in the context, in the, in the context of the times, it was really quite a, you know, a, a strong gesture. One of the things I, I noted was that her uh, her retellings of her written retellings of some of these tales appeared in early anthropological collections, and that she was actually the first one to write in pidgin in Jamaican patois. And while that again that that might look a little off for us today because we have a lot of more, a lot more layers of how these. Um, representations have have unfolded in the 20th century. At the time, it wasn't just innovative, but it was actually you know deeply respectful. It was something that Zora Neale Hurston, for example, did when, in her stories about from from Haiti and from the South, where it was it actually in order to. Um, to honor the particular forms of, of English that were being expressed in these stories, you had to imitate and rather than, quote unquote, uh, correct them. So it was a very interesting a part of her. But I'm, I'm curious whether you see any connection between 
her influence from or her love of Jamaican mythology and the Anansi stories and the the vibrancy of the images and, and tales and characters that she was exposed to in, in those years, any connection between that and the later images in the in, in the deck, which on the surface look more European, you you know, uh, mi- uh, medieval Shakespeare, a little bit of Irish myth in there. But do you do you think that there's some influence there as well? There's not a direct influence in terms of bringing in any of the figures from the Anansi stories or even specifically the backgrounds. Uh, What we see is far more the background around uh, the uh, Ellen Terry's home in Small Hive in the southeast part of England. Um, But um, there's a certain vibrancy that she carried forward from her time there and that love of bright colors and a, a joyfulness and the sense of story that she got from that because she did two little book booklets of those stories that she illustrated herself um, there in, in this big book, uh, the storytelling um, or picture book that Stuart Kaplan has done. Uh, he includes so much of that, uh, that imagery that you can look at. So um, there's a feeling that she got from that, but there's no direct taking of any of those images into these that I've seen or found. Right. No, that may, that, that, I, could, I could see that for sure. You know, I, I, I want to talk now about uh, the esoteric side of the tale and, and, and the Golden Dawn. One of the things that interests me about her story is that uh, her work ends up being arguably the single most influential uh you know, vector of the whole Golden Dawn experiment. You know, if you're into esotericism in the occult, yes, the Golden Dawn is important in many different ways, if for no other reason than it minted, you know, Aleister Crowley. But if you're not really in the occult, for, you know, if you're in the, in the broader culture, the, the only place you're really going to stumble across any resonance of the Golden Dawn is in this remarkable deck. But her own relationship with the Golden Dawn was like a lot of people who enter spiritual groups, you know, and she had her own reasons. She was there out of some mixture of, you know, interests or her friends were in it and, you know, she was drawn to it, but she didn't, you know, kind of dive deep. Uh, and, and, and not to say that, oh, she wasn't an authentic magician or anything like that. It's actually the opposite. It's the way in which I think that when we try to wrestle with the importance of magical orders, and I know you wrote a whole book about the women of the Golden Dawn, and you you know you have a lot to say on the on the on the topic. Obviously, some of the women of the Golden Dawn were were you know powerful movers and shakers that really shaped this this occult this esoteric current that that came out of the order. But I think it's also really important for us to remember that when we think about magical groups or esoteric orders or, you know, strange underground scenes that gather around charismatic figures or charismatic practices, that people are there for a really wide range of reasons. And some people might be really deep into the the lore or the mysticism or the arcane uh, symbology, but other people are there for you know, in some ways, ordinary reasons, and that that's part of what it's about. It's not like once you become a member of an occult order, you become this sort of like, you know, deep mage who's completely obsessed with esoteric secrets. Some people might do that, but other people are are, are there for other reasons, and that can be just as legitimate 
an expression of the current. So I've that since, especially since you wrote this, uh, you know, very well received and important book about uh, the women of the Golden Dawn, such an important story uh, in modern esotericism. How you see her relationship to the Golden Dawn uh, stuff in con- you know in contrast to to whatever to to, to Moyna Mathers or, or or Florence Farr or whatever uh, in terms of how it allowed her to express something of that current, but also to do it in her own way. Yeah, she was only in um, the Golden Dawn for a short while. And when she joined, it had already come to a schism, a breaking apart. And so she joined Waits' far more mystical, um, rectified order, (laughs) uh, which he used that word, the rectified order. Um, And so she was following Waite, who had a mystical Christianity as a background, whereas the Golden Dawn had, um, was much more aligned with an Egyptian um, pantheon, um, although they included far more than that. Um, she said that she, for her, there was this delight in the rituals, but not so much in learning all the memorized systems and uh, so on that Golden Dawn people had to memorize, you know, the Hebrew alphabet and uh, all kinds of correlations between everything you can possibly imagine, the names of all these angels. They would have to take tests on all of this. And she didn't seem to be someone who was very interested in that. She always went her own way. As a matter of fact, she became a Roman Catholic soon after completing the deck. And then um, the World War I came along. She was very involved in uh, making... Um, making things to uh, contribute to the war effort. Like she would sell children's toys, but then all the money would be going towards the war effort. And she did posters uh, for both suffrage and the war effort. Um, but really her, her claim or her, the reason why Wait chose her is that she was highly psychic. And that came out later in, or during this period, was known for her pictures to music. And that's where she would sit and listen to music being played live, preferably by the composer himself. And she would draw as fast as she could these images that she would see as she listened to the music. And she said that if while drawing these images that appeared before her, if she tried to change anything, the image would immediately close down. It was like the iris on a camera. It would open up, show her this image, and then if she started to change something, it would just snap shut. So she had to train herself to keep open to the image that came to her. And composers like Debussy, who became a friend of hers, said that she drew what he saw when he was composing the music. She also would take her drawings and take them to other musicians and ask them to play something based on the image she had drawn. And many of them would play very, very similar kinds of music. So she felt it was a two-way street. Yeah, this this was a, a marvelous discovery of this book. This uh, And it really... You know, because whatever you want to say about what psychic powers are, or this or that, you know, deep, deep, uh, again, archetypes or not, 
the <clears throat> just the fact that she would go into these this, a kind of altered state or a kind of visionary state, let's say, a visionary state that was literally visionary, that was cued by music, which is so abstract in some sense, so non-representative, and yet translated almost like a synesthetic experience, although you're not mixing senses so much as, well, it is kind of mixing senses. You're taking sound into image. Yeah, you're right. You're right. As a a matter of fact, the term synesthesia uh, came into being right around the time that, um, that people started reporting on her. So she was reported as an example of that, of seeing music. That's amazing. You know, it's funny. There's so much stuff. Ha- Again, it's there's something about this time because, you know, like Scriabin, the the composer at that time, he was a synesthete and he sort of not only wrote his music with, uh, you know, a kind of color scheme in mind, but even experimented with color organs. And it was the first time you had people developing in the idea of a color organ, something that would play music and play color at the same time. And also, if you look at the, uh, the really pivotal book, Thought Forms, which is uh, by Annie Besant and Charles Leadbeater, that was, uh, you know, important figures in the theosophy m- movement, that some people point to is really the first abstract art images that we have, because what they were doing in that book was showing uh, what different emotions or experiences would look like to someone with psychic vision. And there are these sort of abstract patterns of color. But in that book as well, they also talk about images, more pictorial images that are associated with music. So there's some way that the, the connection between music and illustration. And it's, again, that idea that, that illustration might seem trivial to some people in, in comparison with art, you know, great art with a capital A, where, you know, the people are coming up with their original visions and they're making, you know, coming up with new techniques, whereas illustration is sort of a handmaiden to stories or, in this case, to music. But there's something equally, if not sometimes more profound about illustration in contrast to sort of high art, in terms of its ability to stir these kind of visionary potentials or these these patterns of symbols, this the emergence of some kind of uh, you know rich world of imagery, and so the fact that she was literally experiencing that—it's not just a, a way of talking about her work. Her work is partly a direct expression of these visionary capacities that pe- some people have. Yes, and many of the newspaper articles written about her during this time really focused on how unusual she was and what innovative uh, experiences she was bringing to the art world. Oh, and turn. Oh, so that that was actually part of her kind of rep was the the fact that she she made these 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 images. Yeah, music as uh, pictures. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. It's, uh, it reminds me again how, uh, you know, whatever, that the peculiar quality of some of her images, again, sticking with the, the numbered cards in the, in the, in the Rider Waite deck, because, you know, people are familiar with them. Ra- Rachel Pollock had a great uh, phrase where she talked about a handful of these cards as being gate cards. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, examples like the, the, the three of wands with the guy looking out onto the water in the distance, you don't see him. And there are these, there are these odd cards because they're, while they're illustrating something, you know, they're illustrating something. It's not really clear 
what's happening? It's a, you're, you're in a story that's, that's as much a, about an enigmatic unknown or a kind of melancholy feeling or a sort of movement of the spirit that doesn't have a particular obvious meaning. And it's, it's in those kinds of images that I, I feel like there's a connection again between the art, the, the art of illustration you know, coming out of illustrated books or coming out of the idea that you're illustrating some story or some other uh, event in kind of with, uh, uh, you know, these well-defined lines that have a slightly cartoon character in the, in the good sense of the term. Um, and at the same time, there's something profoundly mysterious in those images. Um, so what, what do you think about this idea that some of those cards are, are gate cards or have a particular kind of charge to them that, that brings them beyond uh, just illustrating a certain kind of emotional state or, or, or possibility? Well, people talked about her art, not just the, not specifically the tarot art, but her, her other art as opening uh, windows or doorways to an unknown world. And that kind of became a theme among um, several of the uh, commentators on her work, that it did seem to take you into some other place. But specifically, you would use the word unknown, um, and that's what they talked about, that she opened the, the doorways to an unknown world. So that idea of gate cards, which I don't think um, Rachel was at all familiar with these newspaper articles at the time, was picking on, up on the same thing. Um, that it, um, and that's what makes it so exciting when you're doing a reading is I very often will ask the client to talk about one or more cards and I ask them to simply describe the card. And in that description, a very literal description, not to get into any metaphors or meanings or anything like that. But in that description, there starts to create a world there starts to create a story. And then we take it a little further into, um, you know, if this was a child's story that began once upon a time, and this was the illustration, what would that story be? And so they begin, you know, once upon a time, there was this, um, you know, mad in a red cloak standing at the edge of a cliff, looking out at um, the boats that he had just sent off uh, on a long voyage and thinking about, and then they go on and on. And of course, from a psychological point of view, everything that they're saying is actually a projection of their own current state and usually reflects back directly to their issue. You know, I, I, this is great that you that you made the transition yourself to talking about uh, of how you read or how you encourage people, your clients to to read the cards along with you. You know, you, you talked about when you first discovered the tarot in, in the 60s, um, you were, you know, very, you know, influenced and interested in, in, in Jung and the idea of, of, of archetypes. How has, and obviously that remains a continuity in, in, in your work, but how has your sense of what's going on with the cards changed since then in terms of either what's happening or the best way to think about what's happening or not think about what's happening? I'd love to hear that. Well, tarot's been kind of at the forefront of everything I do for 50 years. So, you know, it's hard to say how things have changed because I started out with um, connecting these images on the cards with the, the archetypes of Carl Jung. And uh, my latest work that I'm, I'm working on now is an archetypal, um, a, a Jungian approach 
to tarot. And it's in all of my books, but I'm finally coming out and with a book that actually very specifically looks at uh, Jung's theories and how they play out in the tarot. So, um, and on one way, it hasn't changed. In another way, um, I've spent 50 years studying and exploring and experiencing everything I possibly can about the tarot. And the Rider-Waite-Smith deck has been my constant companion through all of that. I own lots of other decks, and periodically I'll spend some time with another deck, but that's my, my core deck. So, um, you know, to talk about what I've learned or how it's changed is to talk about my life. <laughs> yes, no, I understand that. I'm, and then, and then also in terms of how you how you approach readings, uh, uh, is 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 there there are there sort of rules or not rules, but but uh, um, practices that you have now uh, when when you're working with with clients that have really ch- really changed over that long period of time, or again, is it another very complex story where there's there's not. Uh, very obvious shifts necessarily. Oh, I've, I've constantly added new dimensions to it, but it all comes out of the same kind of source. It's just becoming more um, aware of different techniques. Like uh, through the years, I've explored lots and lots of different variations in guided visualizations and channeling. And I'm not a, per- a channeler per se, but I've certainly have uh, studied and explored it in psychic development work and um, uh, psychological forms of guided visualization, active imagination, which is the term that uh, Carl Jung used and has its very specific uh, steps and intent. Uh, my book, 21 Ways to Read a Tarot Card, kind of goes through the major techniques that I've developed over 50 years. And most of them uh, relate in some way back to uh, a Jungian approach uh, of uh, looking at um, an image, telling a story, and in that, whatever you say, seeing that as a projection of the moment, the synchronicity of the moment that you drew this card at this time for this situation. That's the synchronicity of all that coming together. And if you're getting a reading with this particular reader, all has a very strong um, relationship to the message or information that you are going to get at that time. Uh, The techniques I use are uh, a combination of traditional tarot reading, I can go back to basics uh, at any point, but also guiding a person through the experience. I call my readings um, a reading that is interactive, transformational, and empowering. And each of those words has great significance to me as to what my intent is and what I'm doing with someone in a reading situation. One of the wonderful things it seems to me about the the tarot in particular, but also other other currents within um, esotericism broadly taken or, or or psychic work is that 
it creates the opportunity for people, not necessarily people who are experts or who have completely devoted themselves to these practices, uh, but who are in, just encountering it, to have a framework to do their own kind of active imagination. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, Jung's idea and, and the practices that you discover if you're you know, doing deep uh, depth psychology work of um, working with the imagination's capacity to come up to sort of produce in the in the in a not dissimilar way from the way that Pamela Coleman Smith would see uh, stories and images emerge while she was listening to music that there's a way to free up the unconscious the dreaming mind while we're awake and to to work with or, see, or, or at least witness this kind of image production and and, and especially now when we're surrounded by manufactured images by photographs, by digital images, by CGI that looks more and more real. There's screens everywhere. There's and a lot of these stories that people are interested in. They have fantasy elements. They have quote-unquote archetypal elements in them. You know, and that's, you know, good and bad in, in, some, in some measure. But one thing that does seem to me to be ha happening is that the imagination, meaning one's own capacity to elaborate creatively, spontaneously images that have meaning for you, that that capacity is not really supported by much of our current reality. And in fact, in any way, in, in it almost is, is sort of uh, almost an endangered species because it's so much easier just to plug into somebody else's concocted imagination through the TV screen or the, you know, the Netflix screen or, or, you know, any of the other worlds that we can kind of lose the, lose ourselves in. And one of the wonderful things about Tarot, again, and, and other practices that, that, that work with imagery is that you're invited to like kickstart your own active imagination and see where it goes and, and whatever happens is going to be resonant in some way or, or, or another. And that seems like a, a really powerful thing to to keep alive uh as as possibilities that people can have well you've brought up i think some really important perspectives and ones that i hadn't sat down and thought about so much you know the computer games and all the different media forms one of the big differences is i'm i'm realizing now between those two is the active part of active imagination. And for Carl Jung, that is especially important because a lot of guided visualizations are uh, very passive. You're observing something just like you would watch uh, the media on, on TV. But active imagination, uh, Jung specified that you had to be present in the fantasy, in your imaginative scene. You interact with the figures that are there. Um, you accept what's happening as real within its own framework, within its own reality, that unknown world that Pamela Coleman Smith talked about is as real as our real, but it's a different sphere. So you accept that as real. You don't question what's going on until you come out. And Jung really emphasized um, turning your experience or actually at the sometimes at the same time you're experiencing it putting that into an art form so whether it was um, a drawing or painting or even dance or sculpture or music or whatever your art pulls you to to um, put into a concrete form yourself 
that experience. And then also to actively, after the fact, go over everything with an ethical and moral uh, evaluative judgment, and then turn that into some outer action in the world. Carry forward what you learned and got out of that experience into some relational thing that you do with other people in society and culture. Yeah, that's great. And and for you, it seems like t- uh, the tarot allows both a kind of way to stir up those imaginative juices, kind of kickstart them, give them a little nudge. And at the same time, I, I, I the, the study of the tarot over time, particularly, is also part of that moral reckoning. It's also part of the way that you you, you shape these imaginative forces into active stories and active uh, inspirations that, that are designed to go, to go into your life, to be part of your, your, your real everyday life and not just to exist in a kind of realm of, of fantasy. If it was just fantasy if it, or whatever, if it was just in the imagination, in a way it's kind of missing the point. There's a, there's a practical aspect to these images that is part of what gives them such power. Yes, and and he saw it both in terms of creative expression, which is so powerful that we, um, you know, step from fantasy into our own creativity, and then that moral, ethical obligation to enact something in the world. Well, talking about one's own expression, you know, at, at least in a cert, at a certain period of time, people started do, making their own tarot decks, like whether they were artists who, who said, oh, I'm going to make a tarot deck, whatever, Dolly made his tarot deck, lots of artists had made their tarot deck, or individuals who weren't even, didn't even necessarily consider themselves artists, maybe using collage or something to kind of develop their own story with the actual medium themselves. Is, is, that, is that still as robust as it was, let's say, in the, in the 70s and 80s? Um, and if so, or even not, what, how do you feel about that particular kind of thing of, of people saying, I'm going to do it myself, I'm going to make my own you know, images, and, and what happens when, when people express themselves through the medium of the tarot deck? It has mushroomed <laughs> like an atomic cloud. Uh, <laughs> and part of that is because um, there are processes now for um, printing printing processes that are much, much cheaper than they were before, can be done very quickly. Um, Some people send things off to China, but we're also getting more and more of that uh, kind of equipment here in the United States, so that someone can do a short run of 20 decks, 100 decks, 1,000 decks, um, you know, possible amounts of money. It used to be that it was totally impossible to even uh, for an individual to be able to create a deck for themselves, partly because of how do you um, uh, market it. But the other part was just coming up with the money to have it printed in the quantity that you would have to have to make it viable. So now you can do these short-run decks at a fairly reasonable price and uh, through the internet have people buy them. So you might only sell 500, but you get 500 out there at um, more than what you would pay for a, a deck out of you know, the store standard catalogs. Um, 
so there, yes, there's been a mushrooming of these decks, everyone uh, coming up with their own version using all different kinds of art forms, um, two-dimensional um, art forms. Um, but, order- but, but it's still the case, would you, would you say that, that some of, of, of Pamela Coleman Smith's images are just, even as people are, are making their own versions, you know, you know, a century plus after the fact, that they, they still shape what people come to when they decide to illustrate a particular uh, a card. Definitely. And part of that, just to be absolutely clear, is that um, it makes the decks readable because people can transfer what they learned from the Pamela Coleman Smith style decks, which are the majority of decks that you find in the English speaking and Asian world. And um, because on continental Europe, that there's still a lot yeah. of people that um, hold to the old Marseille style with the unillustrated pips. But the majority of the world has really adapted this format. So once you learn how to interpret those cards based on those imagery and, and the meanings that go with them, then you can carry it across to the majority of the decks that come out. So people are sort of locked into something that at least somewhat relates to the Pamela Coleman Smith imagery. What has happened uh, simultaneously among those people who want to range outside of that is that there's also been a mushrooming of what are most generally called oracle decks. And those are decks that can be any number of cards using any kind of symbolism uh, and imagery that they want. And those are growing probably almost as fast. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a really helpful distinction. I, I, I hadn't quite made it, but it makes, it makes total sense to me. I, I think that my preference is probably still for the, for the tarot. And I think it's partly because, you know, one of the things that, that's difficult for us now is that we, we kind of want tradition, but we don't want the capital T traditions that, that uh, you know, um, maybe mainstream religion has for us or, or more, you know, conservative uh, ways of, of insisting on, on revealed truths. Uh, and so the tarot allow, allows this sort of interesting threshold between popular culture and, and personal inspiration and a tradition. You know, at this point, it's a modern tradition. It's something that we can feel we're in the, we're in, inside of a constraint. It's a genre. It has certain rules. It has certain expectations. And if we stay within those, it can be very powerful for many people who don't know you, don't know your inspirations, don't know your influences. Uh, so it allows individual expression within a kind of recognizable template that kind of creates the sense of tradition, of continuity that, that we want. Even if you go back to the origins, it's really not that long ago in terms of uh, the, at least the, the, the differences that, that the, this particular deck uh, was making. So I, I think it's actually a really wonderful uh, balance of novelty and, and something like tradition. Yes, and... and- and people responding to tradition, there's the feeling that the tarot deck, through all the years that it's been read as a divinatory tool, which is uh, primarily since the end of the 18th century, um, that um, it covers 
our life experiences. So the images can be reinterpreted in terms of modern day experiences very easily. And many of the decks take the, um, the sense of the Rider Waite Smith deck and her imagery, but modernize it um, into you know, urban environments, um, or they take it into other mythical, um, you know, spheres and, and realms of, um, oh, trying to think what the, uh, the one with the goggles and all the mechanistic. Uh, oh, like stuff. cyberpunk kind of steampunk. Yeah, and uh, yeah, steampunk. yeah, yeah, yeah. Steampunk, that's the word. Thank you. So, you know, there's steampunk decks, there's, um, and, you know, there's decks with almost every theme, also all kinds of cultural decks, so that people from uh, cultures around the world have been able to see their own myths in the tarot and have been able to, you know, bring those uh, gods and goddesses and stories into the tarot, and yet still have the the images recognizable by anyone who knows the tarot. So there's the confidence that you're actually covering this kind of archetypal range that is um, pan-human, that it, you know, speaks to humans around the world in whatever culture and reflects those, those, that culture's myths in, as well as it does our Western ones. Yeah, and it. I uh, we just got a we got a minute here left, and I just wanted to mention that um, it, it also seems to have created a very a very open place for people to explore gender and particularly women to you know take the lead. You know, it's really the whole story of Tarot is so rich with women's modern women's stories and including your own, including Rachel's, including, you know, many, many people, including Pamela Coleman Smith's. And, and it's, it's that, for that reason alone, I think it's really uh, uh, one of the key elements of the kind of modern esoteric world. Yes. Well, Mary, I, I just wanted to throw that in the game. We could talk more about that, but the, the time is, the, the clock is, is, is relentless. So thank you so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you for asking me to be here. This has been fun. Great, great. Uh, Mary Greer, who's contributed to the new book, Pamela Coleman-Smith, The Untold Story. It's a, a wonderful book of images. At the very least, go online and look at some of her uh, marvelous pictures. And then until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs> <laughs>